Pamela Sue Wells and Nancy Ellen Trotter were lucky to be alive, police said later. The two attractive teenagers, 18 and 17 respectively, were thumbing for a ride in Stewart, Florida, their second day in town on July 21, 1972. Deputy Sheriff Gerald Schaefer stopped in his police cruiser, took their names, and told them that hitchhiking was illegal in Marin County. It isn't. He drove the girls back to a halfway house where they were staying, then offered them a ride to the beach the next morning. Trusting him as an officer of the law, Trotter and Wells agreed. The next day, the sheriff's deputy kept their date, but instead of heading for nearby Jensen Beach, he drove to swampy Hutchinson Island off State Road A1A, telling the girls he wanted to show them a Spanish fort. Once there, the 26-year-old lawman started making sexual remarks, then drew a gun and told the girls he planned to sell them as white slaves to a foreign prostitution syndicate. Forcing them out of the car, he handcuffed and gagged both girls, leaving them balanced on tree roots with nooses around their necks, at risk of hanging if they slipped and fell. Still making threats, Schaefer left them there, promising to return shortly, but while he was gone, the girls managed to escape. When he returned to find them missing, Schaefer telephoned his boss, telling Sheriff Richard Crowder, I've done something foolish. You're going to be mad at me. Schaefer had overdone his job, he said, trying to scare the girls out of hitchhiking for their own good. Crowder ordered him back to the station and went looking for the girls, finding them both still in handcuffs as they emerged from the forest. Returning to headquarters, Crowder fired Schaefer on the spot and arrested him, charging him with false imprisonment and two counts of aggravated assault. Schaefer made his $15,000 bond and was released on July 24th. With no defense against the charge, he cut a plea bargain the following November, pleading guilty to one count of aggravated assault while the other counts were dismissed. At his sentencing three days before Christmas, Judge D.C. Smith pronounced Schaefer a perfect jackass and a thoughtless fool. Schaefer was sentenced to one year in jail and three years probation. The good news? If he kept his nose clean in the lockup, he could be released in six months. By June, he would be free to hunt again. Schaefer spent most of his time in jail writing stories. Emerson Floyd, his cellmate for the first six months, recalled that no one was permitted to see the work, but Schaefer enjoyed reading the tales aloud. They were mostly just brutal, Floyd said, and included some hair-raising things. Two months after his arrest for the Trotter-Wells assault, on September 27th, two more girls, 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup, had vanished from Fort Lauderdale. Susan's parents said the girls were last seen at her house, leaving with an older man who said his name was Jerry Shepard on their way to play guitar at a nearby beach. They never returned. Susan Place's mother Lucille had been suspicious and had written down the license plate of Shepard's blue Datsun. Unfortunately, she copied the tag's prefix as 4 for Pinellas County instead of 42 for Martin County, and six months passed before she realized her mistake. A new trace led her to Schaefer. On March 25, 1973, she arrived at the Martin County Jail carrying a photo of her daughter, but Schaefer denied ever seeing the girls. On April 1, 1973, hikers found human bones near Blind Creek on Hutchinson Island. Upon hearing the news, Schaefer shredded his short stories and threw them away. The two teenage victims were identified by dental records on April 5. Susan had been shot in the jaw. The crime scene indicated the girls were tied to a tree and butchered. Based on the M.O. and Lucille Place's testimony, Schaefer was the only suspect in the case. Police searched Schaefer's mother's home on April 7th. The objects seized from his room included a purse owned by Susan Place, 
three pieces of jewelry belonging to 25-year-old Lee Bonides, missing since September 1969, two teeth and a shamrock pin belonging to 22-year-old Carmen Halleck, who vanished in December 1969, news clippings on the Bonides and Halleck cases, an address book belonging to 22-year-old Belinda Hutchins, missing since January 1972, a passport diary and book of poetry owned by 19-year-old Colette Goodenough, last seen in January 1973, the driver's license of 19-year-old Barbara Wilcox, who vanished with Goodenough, a piece of jewelry owned by 14-year-old Mary Briscolina, missing with a female friend since October 1972, an envelope addressed to Jerry Shepard, 11 guns and 13 knives, photos of unknown women and of Schaefer dressed in women's underwear, and more than 100 pages of writings and sketches detailing the torture and murder of whores. Schaefer had glib explanations for everything. The weapons were perfectly legal, some of them wore souvenirs. Lucille Place was mistaken about Susan's purse. Schaefer had purchased it on a 1970 trip to Morocco. He had found the Wilcox good enough documents while on patrol and kept them on a whim. Ex-neighbor Lee Bonadies had given Schaefer her jewelry as a gift. The murder plans were fantasies transcribed on orders from a psychiatrist who treated him in 1968, telling Schaefer to write down everything that crossed his mind. As for Carmen Halleck's teeth, they must have been planted by Schaefer's ex-roommate, who he said had privately confessed the murder. Detectives interviewed the roommate and absolved him of the crime. Prosecutor Robert Stone didn't buy Schaefer's explanations. On May 18th, he charged Schaefer with two counts of murder, telling reporters the case might present the greatest crime in the history of the United States. Schaefer declared, I'm sick and I hope to God you can help me. Held in lieu of a $200,000 bond, Schaefer refused to sit for a polygraph test. Judge C. Pfeiffer Trowbridge ordered mental evaluations, four psychiatrists agreeing that Schaefer was legally sane and fit for trial. The trial began on September 17, 1973. Living kidnap victims Nancy Trotter and Pamela Wells appeared for the state, confirming Schaefer's fondness for abducting teenagers and tying them to trees. Lucille Place did her part, describing the last night she had seen her daughter, leaving the house with Schaefer and Georgia Jessup. Three alibi witnesses testified that Schaefer was home, sick in bed, the night Jessup and Place disappeared, but jurors disregarded that testimony, convicting him on September 27th the first anniversary of the slayings. On October 4th, Judge Trowbridge imposed the maximum legal sentence, two concurrent terms of life imprisonment. The monster was caged. But how many had he killed? Gerald John Schaefer Jr. was born on March 25, 1946, in Wisconsin. He was the first of three children for Gerald and Doris Schaefer, describing himself in later life as the illegitimate product of a forced marriage. His father did well as a traveling salesman for Kimberly Clark, soon moving the family to an affluent suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. There, young Gerald did well at Marist Academy, a Catholic parochial school. While one observer called Schaefer's early life idyllic, Schaefer didn't feel that way. He recalled that his parents never had a good relationship. His father was always critical, his mother always on his back to do better. Gerald Sr. favored daughter Sarah, which made his firstborn want to be a girl. He also had thoughts of suicide. I wanted to die, Schaefer told psychiatrists. I couldn't please my father, so in playing games, I always got killed. At age 12, he discovered women's panties and began to masturbate while wearing them. He also practiced masochistic bondage. 
I'd tie myself up to a tree, struggle to get free, and I'd get excited sexually and do something to hurt myself. Soon, the violent images turned outward. I would fantasize hurting other people, he said, women in particular. Schaefer admitted that he had a large preoccupation with death, sometimes reaching the point where he didn't know what was fact and what was fantasy. The Schaefers moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1960, promptly joining the local yacht and country clubs. Gerald Jr. met his girlfriend, Cindy, at age 14 and saw her steadily for the next three years. They were lovers, but Cindy would only perform in scripted scenarios, demanding that Schaefer tear her clothes and rape her each time they had sex. When he balked at continuing the game, in 1964, Cindy dumped him. The same day, Schaefer went into the woods and played his bondage games again for the first time since leaving Georgia. Yearbooks from St. Thomas Aquinas High School list Schaefer as a member of the football team in his sophomore and junior years, but no one remembers him playing or joining in any other group activity. Classmates recall him as a loner, labeled weird and out of it. One noted that Schaefer would practically stand on his head to see up a girl's skirt. In class, he angered the nuns by questioning religious dogma, once writing a long essay scientifically challenging the virgin birth of Christ. Mostly, he preferred solitary pursuits, especially hunting in the Everglades. Neighbor Gary Hainline remembered that Schaefer enjoyed shooting things you can't eat, songbirds, land crabs, that sort of thing. Schaefer sometimes played tennis with Gary's sister, Lee, though sources disagree on whether they dated. Lee Hainline was two years older than Schaefer, and he sometimes crept around her house at night, masturbating while he watched her undress. She was not the only female target of his voyeurism, but Schaefer blamed them all for taunting him, despising them as sluts and whores. In the spring of 1964, Schaefer met 17-year-old Sandy Stewart at a school dance. She later described him as a dazzling young stranger who swept her away and became her first lover, all the while impressing her family with his impeccable manners. Schaefer took her on excursions to the Everglades, seeming amused when Sandy couldn't bring herself to kill an animal for sport. She found him a sensitive and enthusiastic lover, eager to please. Schaefer graduated in June 1964, but the romance continued. He traveled with Sandy's family and became a fixture at their home. For the first time, his life seemed truly idyllic. But it was all a charade. Schaefer's parents finally divorced in September 1969 as he returned to Florida Atlantic University. Three days after classes convened, on September 8th, a mysterious fate overtook a former neighbor, the object of his teenage lust and rage. Lee Hainline had married Charles Bonadies on August 21, 1969. It was a rocky union from the start, with frequent quarrels. One bone of contention was Lee's announcement that her childhood neighbor and sometimes tennis partner had offered her a $20,000 salary to join the CIA. Charles laughed at the idea and told her to forget it. On September the 8th, he came home to find a note from Lee saying that she had gone to Miami. She never came back and her car was later found in a Fort Lauderdale parking lot. Lee's brother called Schaefer and heard a strange story. Lee had phoned him, Schaefer claimed, to say that she was leaving Charles and asked him for a ride to the airport, where she meant to catch a flight to Cincinnati. Schaefer agreed, but Lee never called back with a departure time. Charles filed for divorce on October 6th, his petition granted on March 10, 1970. Nothing more was heard of Lee Bonadies until her jewelry surfaced at Doris Schaefer's home in April 1973. Her fate remains unknown. Schaefer's second tried student teaching fared no better than the first. 
FAU administrators placed him at Stranahan High School, but Supervisor Richard Goodhart removed him on November 11, 1969, after a series of classroom harangues. I told him when he left, Goodhart recalled, that he'd better never let me hear of his trying to get a job with any authority over other people, or I'd do anything I could to see that he didn't get it. Schaefer withdrew from school, blaming marital problems. Four years later, he would tell psychiatrists that he was barred from teaching because they only wanted black people. The next to vanish from Broward County was Carmen Marie Halleck, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress. She had lunch with her sister-in-law on December 18, 1969, discussing a date she had planned for that evening. Halleck said she was meeting a teacher who had offered her a job involving some kind of undercover work for the government. The position featured international travel and lots of money. Halleck missed work the next night, and when she had not been seen by Christmas Day, her relatives used a spare key to check her apartment. They found the bathtub full and her dog unfed. Halleck's car was found in a nearby parking lot a few days later. When Schaefer's stash of souvenirs was seized in 1973, police recovered two of Halleck's gold-filled teeth and a shamrock pin identified by her family. Her body has never been found. In March 1970, Schaefer petitioned FAU administrators to alter his records, changing the November withdrawal to an incomplete and allowing him to resume study. They obliged, and Schaefer returned as a full-time student along with his wife. The marriage was doomed, though. Martha filed for divorce on May 2nd, citing Schaefer's extreme cruelty. He rebounded with a month's vacation in Europe and North Africa, including forays into the Sahara Desert. Schaefer would later boast of victims on three continents. And while given his record, the claim might be plausible, no slayings outside the U.S. are confirmed. By October 1970, to make tuition money, Schaefer was working as a security guard at Florida Light and Power. There, he met Secretary Teresa Dean and they became engaged, tying the knot soon after Schaefer's August 1971 graduation from FAU with a bachelor's degree in geography. It was useless without a teaching credential, but Schaefer had chosen a new career path. Having failed to do right as a priest or teacher, he set his sights on law enforcement. Hired by the Wilton Manors Police Department on September 3, 1971, Schaefer was sent back to Broward Community College, this time to the school's police academy. He graduated on December 17, 1971, and hit the streets to begin his six-month probationary term. Schaefer was on the job barely three weeks before another local woman disappeared. Belinda Hutchins was another 22-year-old cocktail waitress, married to a drug addict who later told police that she had her own lifestyle and did what she wanted to do. Arrested for prostitution in November 1970, she had paid a $250 fine in Fort Lauderdale. There were no more arrests, but Hutchins flaunted her extramarital affairs. On January 5, 1972, her husband and two-year-old daughter watched her climb into a blue Datsun sedan, a strange man at the wheel, and vanish from their lives forever. In 1973, the search of Doris Schaefer's home revealed an address book containing the name, address, and phone number of Belinda's husband. Days later, he identified Schaefer's blue Datsun as the car that took Belinda on her last ride. No other trace of her was found. No charges were ever filed. In Wilton Manors, Schaefer proved himself as poorly suited for police work as he had been for the classroom. Chief Bernard Scott told reporters, He used poor judgment, did dumb things. I didn't want him around. Colleagues called Schaefer badge-happy, obsessed with writing traffic tickets. Ex-FBI agent Robert Ressler claimed Schaefer stopped young women and asked them for dates. 
Years later, detectives asserted that one of those women, never publicly identified, vanished forever soon after Patrolman Schaefer stopped her car. Chief Scott was ready to fire Schaefer on March 16, 1972, when Schaefer surprised him by winning a commendation for a drug arrest. It saved his job, but only briefly. The dumb mistakes continued, and Scott called him in for their last talk on April 19th. Schaefer begged for another chance, almost with tears in his eyes, and Scott relented. The next day, Scott learned that Schaefer had applied for a job with the Broward County Sheriff's Department, and he fired Schaefer on the spot. There would be no Broward County badge for Schaefer, though. He failed the department's mandatory psychological exam and was rejected. Applications to other local departments set Chief Scott's telephone ringing in Wilton Manors. I told them, he recalled, I would put on a uniform and walk the streets myself before I would have them back. On June 30, 1972, Schaefer was hired by Sheriff Robert Crowder in Martin County. He came with a glowing letter of recommendation from Chief Bernard Scott of the Wilton Manors PD. It was only a month later, with Schaefer charged in the Trotter-Wells case, that Crowder checked the letter out and learned it was a forgery. At some point, Schaefer tired of killing victims singly. Doing doubles, he later wrote, is far more difficult than doing singles. But on the other hand, it also puts one in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some lively discussions about which of the victims will get to be killed first. When you have a pair of teenage bimbalinas bound hand and foot and ready for a session with the skinning knife, neither one of the little devils wants to be the one to go first. And they don't mind telling you quickly why their best friend should be the one to die. We can't know when Schaefer started doing doubles. Seven years after the fact, his name was linked to the disappearance of 21-year-old Nancy Leichner and 20-year-old Pamela Nader, Pinellas County residents who vanished on a 1966 picnic in the Ocala National Forest. The case remains unsolved and both women are still missing. A better case exists for Schaefer's involvement in the murders of 9-year-old Peggy Ron and 8-year-old Wendy Stevenson in Papano Beach. Both vanished from the beach on December 29, 1970. A day later, a clerk at a nearby convenience store reported a man buying ice cream for two young girls on the previous afternoon. The clerk identified photos of Peggy and Wendy, describing their companion as a white man in his 20s, 6 feet tall, around 200 pounds. The girls remained missing and Schaefer was never charged, though prosecutors publicly accused him of the crime in 1973. Schaefer denied the slayings publicly but later confessed in a letter dated April 19, 1989. I'm annoyed by all this murder talk, he wrote. Peggy and Wendy just happened along at the time when I was curious about 1930s cannibal Albert Fish's craving for the flesh of young girls. I assure you these girls were not molested sexually. I found both of them very satisfactory, particularly with sautéed onions and peppers. Schaefer was free on bond, awaiting trial for the Trotter-Wells abduction in Martin County when his next known victims were murdered on September 27, 1972. The double slaying of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup would land him in prison for life and would be the only murders for which he was ever tried. Less than four weeks after Place and Jessup vanished, on October 23, 14-year-olds Mary Alice Briscolina and Elsie Lena Farmer were added to the missing list. Farmer's family reported her missing on October 24th, while Briscolinas waited another week, assuming she had run away from home. Farmer's skeletal remains were found on January 17, 1973, eight days after Schaefer went to jail, at a construction site near Plantation High School. Briscolina was found on February 15, 200 yards away. 
Both girls were identified by dental records. Following the April search of Doris Schaefer's home, Farmer's relatives identified a piece of jewelry taken from the murdered girl. Schaefer was never charged with those murders, but he later admitted the crimes in a letter referring to one of his published stories, titled Murder Demons. What crimes am I supposed to confess? He wrote on April 9, 1991. Farmer? Briscolina? What do you think murder demons is? Fiction? You want confessions, but you don't recognize them when I anoint you with them. Schaefer was sentenced for the Trotter Wells assault in December 1972, but he didn't actually enter jail until January 15, 1973. One week later, 19-year-old Iowa residents Colette Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox left Biloxi, Mississippi, hitchhiking to Florida. No trace of either girl was seen until April when searchers found evidence of their fate in Schaefer's stash. Among the items retrieved were Barbara's driver's license, along with Colette's passport, diary, and a book of poems. Skeletal remains of both victims were found at Port St. Lucie in January 1977, but no cause of death could be found and no charges were ever filed. Teresa Schaefer made her one and only prison visit on November 17, 1973, to serve Gerard with divorce papers. Outside the walls, reporters trumpeted that lawyer Elton Schwartz, age 45, was dating Schaefer's 21-year-old wife. He also handled Teresa's divorce and they were married on November 30th, with Schwartz announcing that his client had suggested the arrangement. Inmate Schaefer, undismayed, maintained correspondence with Schwartz for several years afterwards, waiting nearly a decade to charge the attorney with legal malpractice. Meanwhile, Schaefer was busy exposing another conspiracy, claiming that he had been framed by drug-dealing lawmen and Martin County prosecutors. This, despite his statements to psychiatrists that he enjoyed working for Sheriff Crowder because everybody was honest. In Schaefer's new scenario, he was framed for killing two narcotics informants because he refused to play ball with powerful drug lords. Ironically, one of Robert Stone's aides was convicted of drug trafficking in the 1980s, but no evidence linked the case to Schaefer's crimes. Schaefer would ultimately file 19 appeals, each of which was dismissed. In 1987, a weary judge declared, There has to be an end, a conclusion to litigation and to the abuse of the judicial process. The defendant should realize, once and for all, the die is cast, the mold is made, the loaf is baked. Therefore, the judgment is final and forever. They were strong words, buttressed by a state parole board ruling that Schaefer was ineligible for release before February 2017. But still, the hopeless lawsuits continued at public expense. Schaefer found other ways to amuse himself, too. In 1979, he declared himself married to a Filipina picture bride. The young woman appeared in July 1980 and moved in with Schaefer's father. A marriage license materialized, sans ceremony, and was accepted by authorities at Avon Park's minimum security prison. Several contact visits were permitted before Schaefer's wife got her green card in 1985 and dropped him like the proverbial hot potato. A few weeks later, in September 1985, Schaefer was accused of plotting to escape from Avon Park and murder a hit list of victims including his ex-wife, Elton Schwartz, Robert Stone, and Judge Trowbridge. State police confirmed the plot and Schaefer was packed off to maximum security at Stark, home of Florida's death row. Despite being closely watched, Schaefer still managed to run a mail fraud operation from his cell, collaborating with cohorts outside to post ads in sex magazines, soliciting money from various kinky tricks. To that end, Schaefer adopted various pseudonyms, always female. He became Mistress Felice, a dominatrix, prostitute Jessica Zuriaga, 
stern matron Miller, a husband killer on death row, and so on. Some of his slaves paid cash for the privilege of washing Mistress Felice's soiled panties, delivered by mail, for a price. Schaefer also enjoyed writing to inmates in other prisons, posing as the great love of their lives, laughing behind their backs. When not scamming freaks, Schaefer worked as a jailhouse lawyer with a twist. While writing briefs for fellow cons, he milked his clients for information on their cases, then sold them out to authorities. One such inmate, awaiting trial for murder, told Schaefer where his victim's body could be found and Schaefer relayed the directions to police, landing his client on death row. It was a deadly game, perhaps an extension of his childhood death wish, and he played it recklessly as if he were invulnerable. Schaefer had his first encounter with condemned killer Ted Bundy. According to Schaefer, Bundy was always 100% respectful of me. I treated him as a supplicant, while others were hanging on his every word. Bundy allegedly confessed that he had been inspired by Schaefer's case to kill two victims on a single day in 1974. With Bundy, Schaefer debated such fine points of murder as the maggot problem and techniques of cleaning upholstery after dying victims urinated in their cars. Another sometime confidant of Schaefer was self-described cannibal Otis Toole. Sentenced to life for six murders, Toole was suspected of many more, most notably the 1981 kidnap slaying of young Adam Walsh. By 1988, when he met Schaefer, Toole had several times confessed to Walsh's murder, always recanting his statements when detectives asked for proof. Schaefer wrote to Adam's father, John Walsh, host of America's Most Wanted, posing as Toole and demanding $50,000 for Adam's remains, so you can get them buried all decent and Christian. Walsh ignored the offer, and Toole soon soured on Schaefer's mercenary attentions. Aside from the sadistic pleasure of tormenting Adam's parents, Schaefer gained nothing from the episode except a new addendum to his reputation as a snitch. Schaefer lost an admirer on January 24, 1989, when Ted Bundy kept his long-delayed date with Florida's electric chair. Around the same time, ex-girlfriend Sandy Stewart, now divorced mother Sandra London, picked up a copy of Anne Rule's The Stranger Beside Me, detailing Rule's friendship with Bundy, and decided to write a book on her relationship with Schaefer. London wrote to Schaefer on February 8, 1989, asking, Remember me? She pitched the notion of a book about your experiences and requested samples of his writing. Schaefer responded enthusiastically, touting his case as virgin territory, adding, Naturally, I'm favorably disposed towards someone who has known me intimately. He recalled London as a former great love of my life and denied any hostility over their breakup. At their first prison meeting, London found Schaefer transformed into a nebbish, portly, pale, balding, and half-blind. He reminded her of a middle-aged, desk-bound clerk gone to seed. There was nothing soft about Schaefer's stories, though. They sported macabre titles such as Blonde on a Stick and Flies in Her Eyes. Between March and May 1989, Schaefer sent London seven grisly tales. She added drawings and fragments of writing seized from Doris Schaefer's home in 1973, releasing the lot as a volume of killer fiction in June 1989. A second book soon followed, along with independent stories, poems, sketches, and a killer serial that aimed to satirize Schaefer's own case. The leading character? A rogue cop who slaughters prostitutes in his spare time. At Stark, a guard examined Schaefer's work and deemed it pornographic filth, confiscating the latest manuscript as contraband, unsuitable for a prisoner. 
The work was released after Florida's Attorney General admitted the stories played a role in Schaefer's latest legal appeal, but Schaefer himself was forbidden from keeping a copy in prison. Critics in the press and prosecutor's office branded killer fiction a blueprint for murder, masking details of Schaefer's own crimes in the guise of entertainment. Schaefer worked hard to impress his ex-lover. On one hand, he claimed to be innocent, framed by drug-dealing cops and attorneys who feared his integrity, casting him in a martyr's role. I let Satan get control of me, he wrote. I hated evil. I wanted to destroy evil. I went and immersed myself in the battle but destroyed myself in the process. God saved me by allowing me to be framed by corrupt people. A week later, he wrote, My battle has been to overcome the problem of serial murder. I believe I have accomplished this through Jesus Christ. He added, My own personal belief in Jesus assures me of my future as a child of God, but that does not excuse me from helping my fellow man. This he sought to do by writing graphic tales of rape and murder, declaring that, My reward, if any, will be a spiritual one. The bizarre flip side of that pious facade was Schaefer's effort to pose as a leader of organized crime. On March 21, 1989, he wrote, I am, factually, a captain of the Dixie Mafia. I have, factually, the power to have you killed. I have, in the past, used these powers. Three days later, he added, I am a syndicate man. When I put on my mob subchief's hat, I am Don El Tigre, and I can scare the living shit out of you. Where that left Child of God Schaefer was anyone's guess, but he didn't stop with claims of mob connections. Schaefer also insisted, on January 20, 1991, I am the top serial killer and I can prove it. He was an expert hangman, Schaefer wrote, dispatching victims so quickly that they wouldn't even pee on the rope. Furthermore, he added, I never at any time required more than two strokes to behead a woman. Never. I was absolutely skilled at it. Schaefer was vague on numbers, but once estimated his body count somewhere between 80 and 110 victims. One whore drowned in her own vomit while watching me disembowel her girlfriend, he smirked. I'm not sure that counts as a valid kill. Did the pregnant ones count as two kills? It can get confusing. Always, though, he balked at the notion of sex as a motive. I did not have sex problems, Schaefer wrote on March 22, 1989. A problem means you're unhappy, discontented. And again on April 9, 1991. A sex killer I was not. I am unique. I guarantee it. Killer Fiction and its sequels flopped commercially, leaving London short of cash in early 1991. On January 18th, Schaefer proposed marriage, noting that his wife could not be forced to testify, even if I were to show you a basket of severed heads. The next day, he reconsidered, blaming London for his crimes. I will tell you here and now, he wrote, that plenty of your women died because you couldn't help me solve my various crises in 1965. I tried to tell you about it, but you couldn't deal with it. You bolted, abandoned me. That's when it started. Prison officials began intercepting mail between Schaefer and London in March 1991. On May 16th, guards opened a letter and discovered outlines for new stories. They filed a disciplinary report and Schaefer spent 30 days in solitary for conspiracy to conduct a business from his cell. With book sales stagnant, London sought new avenues of income. Producers for the television show A Current Affair offered her $1,000 for a segment on Schaefer. Reluctantly, Schaefer agreed to an interview with reporter Steve Dunleavy. In place of his frame-up defense, though, viewers heard London proclaim, he was normal, except he had a compulsion to kill. 
Robert Stone branded Schaefer one of America's worst serial killers ever. Dunleavy called Schaefer a monster and a diseased specimen, closing the segment with a prayer that Schaefer find his hell on earth. We're through, Schaefer wrote London on April 12, 1992, after viewing the program. You've tapped a black hole of genuine rage and it's focused on you. Just never speak my name to anyone, anywhere, ever again. I've met a number of people from the Satanist underground. To express my appreciation for what you said on TV, I've explained to them about your daughter. They'll probably get in touch with her personally. If you want to make an issue of this, then the kid is going to be the one to pay the tab. Am I clear? On April 24, 1992, Schaefer wrote to London. I'm poised to sue everyone. I may not win, but I'll break everyone's bank and make the lawyers richer. A month later, on June 19th, he wrote again, this time announcing that he had sold book and film rights to the true story of his frame-up to a major publisher. Schaefer could not resist signing off with a warning. The very next time you say or do anything that causes me problems, I'm going to encourage my dope-addled Satanist pals in Georgia to go pick up your slut daughter and teach her some sex education. London returned to Stark in February 1993, but not to visit Schaefer. This time, the object of her attention was condemned Gainesville ripper Danny Rowling. Looking beyond his grisly crimes, London found Rowling handsome, charming, and really quite wonderful. The feeling was mutual. The couple soon announced their engagement, although the warden vowed there would be no marriage. Undeterred, London wrote a book about Rowling's case, splitting the proceeds from his prison prose and artwork with Danny's brother. Schaefer learned of London's new romance from prison sources and fired off another letter on February 13, 1993. It read, in part, Hello, whore. The word on the yard is that the queen of the sluts was romancing Danny Rowling. Valentine, you're mine. I know what you're up to. Money. You're gonna get Danny Boy fried while you make a buck off his misery, right? Well, go for it. Just make sure you keep my name out of it. This time, instead of Satanists, he threatened London with reprisals from the KKK. London's relationship with Rowling galvanized Schaefer, precipitating his first wave of frivolous lawsuits. Pleading poverty to avoid filing fees, Schaefer issued a series of handwritten complaints, expanding over time to sue virtually everyone who had publicly called him a serial killer. Most of his crimes alleged libel, but some claimed civil rights infringement pretending that published false charges had stalled his parole. Despite reminders from the state that he was ineligible for release until 2017, courts ranging from Florida to Indiana and New York accepted Schaefer's pleadings and began the slow, expensive process of reviewing each in turn. Cheated of the sadistic pleasure he had once derived from hanging women, Schaefer now found another way to make his victims dance. The jailhouse lawyer cherished an illusion of control over his enemies. One of the first to suffer was Patrick Kendrick, a paramedic and would-be author who spent five years researching the case, concluding that Schaefer had slain at least 11 women. Schaefer sued him for $500,000 over comments in a private letter to a friend of Schaefer, posing as a journalist, wherein Kendrick stated that Schaefer had once been accused of 36 murders. That was libel, Schaefer claimed, since Prosecutor Stone had mentioned only 34 victims in 1973. Worse yet, Kendrick's letter described Schaefer as a middle-aged, pale and doughy, bookish kind of wimp. Raging from his cell, Schaefer told reporters, People think prisoners are powerless, that we can't do anything, but I'm showing you I can do a lot.
I'm showing him I'm not a wimp. And so it went. In swift succession, Schaefer sued true crime authors Joel Norris, Michael Cartellis, Jay Nash, Michael Newton, and Colin Wilson. Robert Ressler was sued for writing about Schaefer's case and for mentioning him in lectures on serial murder. Forensic dentist Richard Sauveron, who identified Carmen Halleck's teeth in 1973, received a summons for providing photos and fragments of Schaefer's writings to a British magazine. Kentucky academic Ronald Holmes included Schaefer on a list of serial killers, appended to journalist Anne Schwartz's book on Jeffrey Dahmer. In response, Schaefer sued Schwartz, her publisher, Holmes, and the University of Kentucky, urging that Holmes be fired to defer litigation. Despite Schaefer's frequent claim that he never lost a lawsuit, the very opposite was true. Across the board, his claims were dismissed as frivolous or untimely, filed after the statute of limitations for libel actions had expired. In Schaefer v. Colin Wilson, Schaefer's loathsome reputation was declared libel-proof under the law. July 1994 saw him formally branded a serial killer undoubtedly linked to numerous murders by Judge William Steckler in the case of Schaefer v. Michael Newton. Steckler went on to note that Schaefer boasts of the private and public associations he has had based on the reports that he is a serial killer of world-class proportions, and it's only arrogant perversity which propels him towards this and similarly meritless lawsuits. Sandra London bore the brunt of Schaefer's malice. He sued her three times, all dismissed, and tried to have her arrested for stealing his literary works valued in excess of $110,000, likewise dismissed. London fought back, petitioning for a protective order, waiting her brief with 500 pages of Schaefer's death threats and murder confessions. Finally barred from writing to London directly, Schaefer penned a furious letter to her publisher on December 5, 1993. Referring to a fellow convict, an annotated fourth prince of the hand of death, he raved, all I need to do is ask this gentleman to have S.L. and her kid murdered, and it would be done. S.L. is alive at this moment because I choose to allow it. As it happened, though, Schaefer had survival issues of his own. Following the dismissal of his last two lawsuits in Florida, he wrote to the appellate court, While working in the prison law library, plaintiff was attacked by another inmate and stabbed repeatedly in and about the face, body, and hands. Due to the trauma sustained incidental to this attack, plaintiff is now unable to prosecute his appeal. Therefore, plaintiff withdraws the appeal in this case. Things went from bad to worse for Schaefer after the November 1994 attack. Danny Rowling wrote to Sandra London that Schaefer had encountered big-time problems from inmates who pegged Schaefer as a rat and a pain freak and a manipulating snitch. Over the next year, he was harassed by convicts who splashed him with urine and pelted him with feces. Twice his cell was set afire, any surviving papers ruined by the prison sprinkler system. Trouble also surfaced on the legal front, unrelated to Schaefer's frivolous lawsuits. In fall 1995, Fort Lauderdale homicide investigator Tim Bronson reopened the Halleck, Hutchins, and Bonadies cases, reviewing the files with an eye toward prosecuting Schaefer for one or more slayings. Bronson hoped one indictment might persuade Schaefer to cut a plea bargain and close all three cases. Cautiously optimistic, he telephoned Stark on Friday, December 1, 1995, and made arrangements to interview Schaefer on Monday. But he never got the chance. On Sunday, December 3rd, prison guards found Schaefer slaughtered in his cell. His throat was slashed and he had been stabbed 42 times around his head and neck. A bloody handprint on the wall of Schaefer's cell appeared to be the only clue. Two months later, on February 1st, 1996, 
prison officials filed a murder charge against 33-year-old Vincent Faustino Rivera, confessed slayer of two Hillsborough County victims, who had begun serving a sentence of life plus 20 years in January 1991. According to the state scenario, Rivera and Schaefer had quarreled after Schaefer took the last cup of hot water from a dispenser on their cell block. Rivera had brooded a while, then settled the argument with a homemade shank. Or had he? In November 1996, Rivera wrote to Sandra London, pleading innocence and claiming that the bloody print from Schaefer's cell matched neither Schaefer nor himself. Schaefer's mother and sister accused Otis Toole of the murder, alleging that Toole had felt threatened by Schaefer's ongoing efforts to help the Walsh family recover young Adam's remains. The National Enquirer reported that Schaefer had arranged to speak with detectives concerning the case, angling for a transfer back to Avon Park if he could produce Adam's bones. Toole denied any role in Schaefer's slaying, and the Walsh case remained officially unsolved at Toole's death from cirrhosis in September 1996. Justice moved slowly for Vincent Rivera. On June 8, 1999, three and a half years after Schaefer's death, Rivera was convicted of second-degree murder, sentenced to an additional 53 years and 10 months. With life plus 20 on his plate beforehand, it was what lifers called a freebie. As for Schaefer's major book and film deals, they were merely so much smoke.